everyone, and welcome to another episode of the 212 Podcast. We are a podcast that does a deep dive into the specialists in the arts and entertainment industry. Please hit the like and subscribe button if you like what you hear or who you hear. Today's guest is best known for his ability to turn his hand to anything music-related, to being a keyboardist, to a flautist, to flaunting his stuff as a free-flowing singer and composer, even bigger it goes on to his most iconic piece of work, which is producing and collaborating with Gil Scott Heron on albums in the 70s and 80s. As well as his time with Gil Scott Heron, he's worked with Earth, Wind & Fire, Gwen Guthrie and Roy Ayers, as well as being the most famous Jackson of all time. No one compares. Not related, just to be clear. Uh, please welcome to the podcast, Brian Jackson. How are you and where are you today? Hey, Daniel, I'm, I'm fine, thanks. Uh, here in Portland, Oregon. Uh, my home of the last uh, three years. I'm originally from from Brooklyn, New York, and uh, spent most of my life there with a couple of uh, brief hiatus, 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 hiatus. Cacti, cactus. It's yeah. It, we, no, nobody knows. It's it's right. potato, potato. That's probably a good place to start. I think one of the things that obviously struck me when you when you kind of look back into your history and where you grew up one thing i found before coming to the interview was that you spent some time in the flatbush section of of brooklyn growing up correct and i'm sure you've seen every type of change happen over the years to that area but it's kind of known for kind of producing music and musicians from that area i'm thinking kind of fushnikins flat flatbush zombies now you know, Neil Diamond lives there, Joey Badass, Barbara Streisand. Barbara, you know, yep. why, do, why do you think that happens in that area specific? I think that we, you know, we all have a, a deep desire to get the hell out. <laughs> and uh, we would do anything. <laughs> no, actually, I love, I love, I love Brooklyn. I, I love growing up in Brooklyn. I think that uh, for, some, for some reason, uh, maybe, it, maybe it's this. New York has always been a bit more expensive to live in. So where do New Yorkers, where, where did New Yorkers go when they couldn't live in the most expensive city? They would go to the next most expensive city. <laughs> Makes a lot of sense, right? But Brooklyn, it became a large, a large community of people who were you know, trying to survive. We were trying to make it in New York if they happened to have been born there or ended up there for some reason. And I think out of that, there was a a real amalgamation of of cultures and and people like brooklyn is physically much larger than than new york and you you know new york is all is known for its its neighborhoods and its 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 areas well brooklyn is just like four or five at least four or five times larger than manhattan and so the areas are larger the neighborhoods are larger the communities are larger and they they all abut each other you know, in one way or another. And uh, there's a lot of, there, there's been a lot of, of cross-pollination between cultures. I think it's much more possible in a place that uh, that has more area for it. And I guess like you've, you know, I, mean, I just mentioned a few there, you know, just from, it's not even kind of ethnicity based. It, it's diversity personified, really, like in terms of, you know, as I say, Barbra Streisand, Fushnikins, you couldn't get polar opposites in terms of the music, <laughs> music genres. What, what do you think is in common with everyone that kind of is in that area? What, what's the what's the kind of ride uh, overriding feeling? I think the overriding feeling is that, you know, New York is right across the is right across the water. Um, and anything that we didn't have 
in Brooklyn. All we had to do was hop on a subway and go get it in New York. So just the, the amount of, of culture, uh, painting, dancing, arts of all types, uh, music, obviously, in particular jazz. There was just so much going on in that city, in, in, in New York, in the New York proper, Manhattan. And, and we, we, it was available to us. You know, it was kind of like sit, we would sit in our, our little living rooms in, in Brooklyn and could watch New York, Manhattan as though it were on TV. You know, it was, it, was quite an ex, it was quite an experience. It was a lot of excitement, a lot of things to learn and a lot of things to see. And, and I'm guessing it wasn't just, you know, I think, you know, my baseball knowledge is, is pretty much non-existent. But I think when, when you kind of look at it, it, it's not just, like you said, it's not just music or arts or dancing. It's, it's sport. It's, it's an amalgamation of a lot of different things that people are actually interested in. And I wondered, did you, was it music that kind of took uh, center stage for you or, or, or did you have a love or passion or for, for any sports or arts or dancing as well? Yeah. I mean, you know, there was a, there was some, there were so many ex- exciting things to, to uh, go be going on in New York. Like uh, the New York Knicks was a great, was a great team when the Mets uh, were formed. I was, I was there, you know, I was there when they put up Shea stadium. I was there when uh, they turned Ebbets Field into uh, an apartment complex. Ebbets Field was where the Dodgers used to play. It was their stadium until they moved to Los Angeles. I think a lot of people in this generation might not even know that that the Dodgers, you know, started out in in Brooklyn. So no, and I mean the the, the there was the Phil uh, there was the Philharmonic, you know, there was Lincoln Center. There was there were all kinds of things that you could see. My mom, I mean, for instance, my my mom took me to see um, a version of the uh, of the Nutcracker for Christmas at uh, at Lincoln Center. Yeah, I mean, there was Carnegie Hall. There were whatever type of cultural event or cultural leaning you were were you know were were moving toward. It was all it was all there. So yes, I uh, I definitely enjoyed. I I partook of as much as I as I possibly, uh, as I possibly could. And then was music encouraged by your, your kind of peers or your friends that were hanging around with you or your family, or it's just, it's omnipresent in the community. It's uh, it's omnipresent in the community, but it, it was particularly omnipresent in my house. Um, both my mom and dad were, were avid uh, jazz fans. They had a lot of, a lot of records that they would play. I can't really, in, in looking back and thinking back to my childhood, I really can't think of, of any time where there wasn't a, there wasn't music going on to, during any of the events that I, the events that I can remember, which are few granted, but uh, yeah, no, there was music playing in our house all the time. And what do you think you're, what do you think you're kind of like, uh, asp- thinking you, you as a young child growing up around that, Obviously, there'd probably be music that you were like, I don't want anything to do with this when I'm older. But what were the kind of aspirations for you back then? You, did you kind of want to be a musician or did you just did you just know that I, I need to be in the music scene and that's that's it, period? I don't care how I get in it. Just I just want to be in it. Well, I think there were two things. One thing is that I was very um, inquisitive. I was a very curious child. And so I always wanted to know what was behind things. You know, like if I had a toy, maybe it would be 
a few days before I would I would open it up and see how it worked. Oh, the spring made this happen or, you know, whatever. Not to say that. I mean, obviously, I couldn't put it back together again. So that was a problem. I got in trouble for that a lot. But, You're one of those uh, kids, Brian. You're one of those. I was, I was one of those. And uh, similarly with music, which is something that really fascinated me, I wanted to know how it worked. And so that really became, that's that's really how my my interest in in playing music began. I, I just wanted to know, you know, what was behind it? How did it how did it how did it work? <laughs> that's and that that started me on the on the on the journey. I guess that kind of like leans into you know another one of the questions. I guess you know having you know that collaboration and meeting Gil Scott Heron and and doing the amazing work that you did together as a duo. When did you, you know, you you saying about kind of looking at the intricacies of of how things work? When was there that moment of kind of the politics influencing the music or vice versa? And how how did how did that come about? Well, that came about from my mom's interest in uh, and my grandmother, my grandmother's both of their interest in uh, in current events and what was happening in the news. So in our house. When the seven o'clock news came on, you know, all eyes were 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 there, and it just so happened to be in a time uh, that the civil rights movement was um, was just gaining steam. And so, what I would see on the news were a lot of people who looked like me being beaten with batons and bitten by dogs and and slammed into walls by the pressure from from fire hoses. And I, I needed to process that, you know, I, I really wanted to, to understand what was happening. Uh, and I, I don't think I, I really could. It didn't really crystallize for me until one day I was walking home from, from school and I saw a kid with a button that said, end segregation now. And uh, I, I mean, I could read the word, but I had no idea what it was. And I, I asked my mom, I said, you know, what, what does that word mean? And um, she explained it to me, and uh, you know, I, I looked at the kind of the the dejected look on her face when she realized that you know now was the time that she was going to have to explain to me how this all how this all was working or not working, as the case may be. And uh, once she explained to me that you know there are there are people in this country and you know in in the world that judge people based on their skin color and that you know like kind of <laughs> you know a, a, a compassionate way to say you know tag you're it and uh you know i i understood it but i i resented it obviously i i couldn't i couldn't make out any world or any reality where that uh that made sense um and so again <laughs> i tried to figure out how did that work how does racism, you know, how does that, how does that work? How does segregation, how do they do that? And I found out a little, I got my answer to some of that the next year when I was um, forced to, to take a bus, a school bus all the way across town to go to a school in order to quote unquote integrate it when I had a perfectly good school, like three blocks away from me and the accompanying, um, Kind of resentments from the from the kids in the neighborhood and um, from the from the the students who had previously um, you know been uh, been there without uh, having to deal with uh, any of the other any other cultural issues other than their own. 
And what was, the, I mean, I can't even think of a, a you know, a, a, as a parent myself, I can't even think of, I, I can't even comprehend, like, you even happen to have the conversation. I mean, obviously, we're in 2023, which is, it's, it's, it, it can't even comprehend that, that, that you would have the, have to have that conversation and how you would have that conversation, how you broach that. And I must, I, I, there must have been a, part of your mum given how interested she was in, in the political stance at the time there must have been a part of her that maybe didn't want to tell you the full picture to protect you in some way absolutely i mean there's no way that she could have told me the whole picture unfortunately unfortunately i i saw it on the news you know whenever there was a lynching uh, i i knew what a lynching was you know i'd seen some pictures of uh, of black people being hung from the from the trees i could sense my my grandmother's um, um, apprehension uh, when I went out in the world, uh, if I was uh, going to be around um, in in another neighborhood, uh, you know, I could I could sense those things, and it was from those I I put together that uh, you know America was a pretty dangerous place. Could be it could be a very dangerous place for for a black boy. And did did you did you feel safe in? any of the environments that you're in i i felt safe in 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 all of my environments you know i just um i but i i was smart enough to know that uh, that could change at any time you know and uh i i tried not to dwell on it of course i did feel i did feel safe in the environments that i that my 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 mom you know my parents allowed me to uh to be in i think they were they were wise about it and uh you know overall i i didn't have a, a multitude of uh, of problems you know the neighborhood that i i grew up in uh crown heights it was a working class neighborhood many of the uh, the west indian residents there had uh, had bought the homes had bought their homes and was struggling you know mightily to uh, to keep to keep their kids on the straight and narrow and you know make sure that they achieved academically and even though um my my mom didn't have the same resources uh, you know it was her also her goal to make sure that uh, that i could be raised in a in a safe and educational kind of an environment a place where i could you know where i could learn and grow and i guess you know coming back to that kind of relationship and someone who's going through a similar you know struggle with that 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 time as well is is Gil Scott, Scott Heron and, and I, I wondered how did you when and where did you meet and what did you did you bond over that mutual kind of struggle or that that need to uh, to kind of get music out there to to promote how you're feeling yeah well there were a couple of things that that we had in common before we even knew it um one of the things was that well, during my my couple of last couple of years in in high school, I went to Erasmus Hall High School in Brooklyn, which incidentally is in Flatbush, and happens to be the school that uh, Barbara Streisand had attended ten years prior before I went there. Speaking of Barbara Streisand, but um, yeah, we had already one one of the things that I and uh, my classmates had been dealing with at at uh, Erasmus for the our last two years uh, was some type of um, equity in the uh, in, in in education and particularly in history, um, because we had begun on our own independently, you know, and, and through the efforts of uh, of of great scholars like uh, John Henry Clark and uh, Sheikh Anta Diop and, and 
historians, uh, uh, Yusef Ben Jokanan, for instance, I mean, we were exposed to information about African culture, things that we had really not heard about in, in school and really didn't know that much about on our, you know, hadn't found out that much on our own, but we just knew that there was something out there from what we had heard. And we wondered, we were angry that uh, that, that, that wasn't included in our history, in our history courses. So we began to protest. And uh, during the last year, uh, they brought somebody on to teach um, African history. So I was already feeling that there was a lot more to education than had been presented. And I wanted to have kind of a more Afrocentric experience, which is why I, uh, I, I applied to Lincoln University. Langston Hughes had, been, had gone there. Thurgood Marshall had gone there. Oscar Brown Jr. had gone there. It seemed like a cultural mecca, kind of, and uh, I, I wanted to be in, a, in an environment like that. It turns out, I found out later that, that Gill also uh, had considered Lincoln University high up on his list um, because of the fact that Langston Hughes went there. So that's something that we both had in common. I, I think what bound us was not particularly our experiences as young black boys in, in America as much as our love of music and of poetry. I guess you you kind of mentioned it there as well, but I mean, when you guys kind of collaborated and, and as you say, you know, the, the, the education piece is the piece that always seems to be missing when it comes to anything segregation related. But, you know, what did your parents think when you started to voice your opinion through music, you know, with Gil? And, and I think I'm, I'm thinking, you know, was there less restraints, restraints back then or more in terms of being free? Obviously, you think of someone like Fela Kuti that that went through untold abuse for his own political views in, in, in music. You know, his own mother, you know, died through that. It's, it's, did it feel dangerous? Did, was there anyone that's kind of stopping you or telling you to not say certain things or? Not in my family. I mean, you know, no, my, my, my mother was, uh, was very supportive. Uh, my grandmother, I told you was, uh, you know, had been traumatized by uh, the experience of, um, of growing up, as a girl in uh, in in Georgia, so yeah, no, naturally she was um she was quite fearful for uh, for me, but no, in in general, I I, I received nothing but uh, but support from my mom. I mean, my mom had taught me some of the most valuable lessons about uh, about race relations in this in this country, and she was a a very well-read and erudite woman, and and uh, she worked at the she worked at the Ford Foundation, which um, was at the Ford Foundation Library, which allowed her to uh, to to have like a vast uh, um, wealth of of knowledge available, and she would bring these books home. So when I would mention something about wanting to be an FBI agent or you know a CIA agent because I watched too many spy spy TV shows and movies, she would bring me home a book about uh, the, the uh, something called, I believe it was called the clandestine government. You know, it was about all of the dirty tricks that, that uh, the CIA had pulled all over the world, particularly in, in at the time Africa was, was high up on the list in South, and, and South America. 
So, you know, she would always kind of bolster my education with these great books and, and uh, this, this knowledge. Um, similarly, she got me interested in stamps because she would receive, you know, the Ford Foundation Library would receive uh, requests for, for books from all over the world. And I had like one of the greatest collections of, of books and it, it made me, I mean, of stamps and it, it made me dream, you know, it, it made me understand that there are places outside of outside of Brooklyn where people had the same the same kind of the same goals you know the same quest for for knowledge and understanding you know so yeah I was I was fortunate in in that regard and and Brian to be fair you could still be an FBI agent and this music thing is just a ruse that we that we, we you've you've hidden for years um uh-huh. so. yes <laughs> well you know what it's very interesting that you mentioned that because in in some sense our music was commodified. I'll give you an example. I was uh, a few years back, a record store owner that we had, that Gil and I had visited years ago, sent me a picture. And we had an album out. We had had an album out. We were there to promote this album. It was called Bridges. And on the, the album, on Bridges, there was a song called uh, Delta Man. And if, if you're familiar with that song, then one of the, the, the uh, lines in that song is, um, Put a little revolution in your life. So he sent me this picture and I'm looking at it and there's another song on there called Deaf, Dumb and Blind. So it was me, Gil and the, the store owner. And each one of us, like the three monkeys, you know, covered one of our, you know, one, one of our, uh, the organs of our sensory organs. So I, I think I had, you know, my ears, over, my hands over my ears. One guy had his hand over his mouth and then some, somebody else had their hand over their eyes. All right. And then I, my, my attention shifts to the, to the, the right of the picture. And I just off in the off, I just, there was just enough of it for me to see what it said. So there's a big poster, you know, announcing the, the arrival of this new album, Bridges. And uh, in, in smaller print under, underneath the picture of the album, it says, put a little revolution in your life. And then under that, it says $10.99. And so, yeah. You know, from that, I I understood that in some sense we we had been had. You know that that what they're what they're actually offering, what the label, what the record company was was offering, was a chance to uh, to feel uh, as though you were you know kind of a revolutionary by by buying this album. You know, we had been we had been commodified. And you hear so many, you know, there's so many examples of that, isn't there, in the music industry? I think I'm just thinking, you know, when we're recording right now, you know, uh, De La Soul's records being released again after this after this whole time, you know. Um, and you look at yeah. that and you think, how have, how have they been held back for so long by record labels? It's just, yeah. it's insane. Yeah, exactly. Um, with the Bridges that you were talking about, I guess, uh, was that the second or first uh, album that you worked Bridges together with? Bridges was, uh, let me see. There was uh, pieces, there was, well, for Gil, there was Small Talking on 25th and 90s. Then uh, the first album he and I did together was Pieces of a Man, then Free Will. Winter in America was third. From uh, Midnight Band, First Minute of a New Day was number four. From South Africa to South Carolina was number five. Yeah, Bridges was number six. Yeah. 
you were just churning them out. We were. <laughs> I wondered with with that because obviously you just mentioned the the, the amount of albums that you, that you did there. Did you, you know, it just kind of clicks. Did you and Gil have a collaboration and you were just on that same wavelength for the first time of of meeting? Did you kind of, did it just click? Absolutely. Absolutely. Gil was saying everything in words that I was, that I, I wanted to say in my music and, and vice versa. You know, I think that, that one of the, one of the things that we always kind of operated on one of our standard oper- operating procedures was that if, if, if there was a song, if, if, for instance, I wrote a song, Gil would always ask me the first thing he ever asked me when we decided to try and write a song together was what were you feeling when you wrote this song? What were you, what were you trying to convey? Or, um, you know, what does, what does this song, what is this song about to you? And then that I, once I explained it, once I would tell him, you know, sometimes it took me a while to kind of go back over the process, kind of, um, you know, reverse engineer it and, and try and figure out where that feeling did come from. But once I was able to locate it, you know, Gil would it would be short work for him to to uh, to take a, a paper and a pen and, and put down exactly what I had told him the song the song was about and it, you know i mean it was just basically for insurance that he did that because he i honestly believe that had he not asked me that he still would have come up with the lyrics that that said what what needed to, what the song wanted to say but i guess that makes the good collaborators doesn't it it's it's you know leaning on each other for for inspiration yeah and totally Exactly. And I think that, that that's there's there's other people that have been involved in that you know that collaboration journey you know Ron Carter or or you know do you think there's other people that well, I don't think uh, either of you on the albums that you've created get enough credit but I guess is there other people in the journey that you feel like probably don't get enough credit for the for the for for their talent I guess and and their collaboration within some of these albums Oh man there there are so many for instance, um, Amiri Baraka, Leroy Jones, you know, uh, Amiri Baraka, one of the great poets, you know, and 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 someone who had already done spoken word to music in the fifties, you know, in this in the sixties, you know, people like to talk about uh, who is the the godfather of of rap or you know the, who is the you know the progenitor of this or whatever, but in in reality, the spoken word tradition had you know gone back long before us we just kind of did it the only way we could and it it turned out that it was that it was a unique and and b something that that you know people people enjoyed listening to but no i mean there are many langston hughes as i mentioned earlier is another person who had done a recording of uh, jazz music uh where he also uh where he also recited where he also recited some of his poetry. I mean, there are there are countless examples of people who uh, who have carried the torch long before us. Did you set out to make sure it was spoken word, or did you feel like that would have the most impact, or does Gil really have like a terrible singing voice and um, <laughs> the <laughs> the spoken word worked? <laughs> you know, neither one of us really enjoyed being out front. What happened? is uh that we we decided that we wanted to be kind of like uh well my i kind of if you could say role models were the old tin pan alley writers you know um irving irving berlin 
uh, George George Gershwin, uh, Cole Porter. You know, these guys were writing, first of all, music that was that was great, but they were also writing lyrics that were just so insanely beautifully crafted. And I I think both of us wanted to be song crafters. We 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 thought that that was probably the highest form of of our abilities. And so we we aspired to be to be songwriters, some people who would who would write songs for for other people who were not as uh, as insecure about their uh, their performing abilities as we were to perform these songs. However, it soon occurred to us that you know they we probably weren't going to get a whole lot of uh, you know a whole lot of people to sing songs you know like the prisoner <laughs> or home is where the hatred is <laughs> you know so we soon realized that if we ever wanted to get these songs out that we were going to have to do them ourselves and you know that's that's the end of that story i mean that you know that's that's how it all started basically and I guess one of the things that you just mentioned there as well is, you know, talking of rap and, you know, the the albums that you did create, you know, why do you think that album or the albums that you've you've made or the music that you've created, it's lasted the test of time, I guess, in, in, in terms of, you know, samples include like Moz Def, uh, Common, Kanye West, Kendrick, Lords of the Underground. They've all sampled your your music. And I, I, I just, I wonder why you think it, it's, it's still as poignant today and people are still using it today um, as they were back then. Well, I don't know. I, you know, the music, uh, I, I certainly don't know exactly what people find, you know, that, that resonates through, through, what is it now? Two generations, almost three generations. I, I really can't say as far as the lyrics are concerned though. I mean, I think the, the answer is because uh, the, the things that, uh, that that were being said that we said at the time are are still relevant are still are still true you know when we speak about some of the injustices that happened in the in the 70s uh and 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 I wish for those 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 injustices to be to be dealt with and to be um, to be looked at and recognized and discussed and and fixed uh well they haven't been I mean we we haven't gotten very far in those dialogues and we certainly haven't gotten very far in terms of uh, how we deal with them or, or you know, whatever solutions that they, they might be to help uh, remedy them. And, and we can see it now as well, you know, videos, footage, oh, media. Yeah. We can see all of that now. And it's still, you know, this, it's still this, not the same, but it's, there's, there's still some level of this still happening, isn't there? It is. And, you know, I mean, the, the, when we were writing, when we were writing songs about these things, uh, you kind of had to take our word for it. <laughs> you know, we had done the reading, we had done the research and we were saying, hey, guys, you know what just happened or you know what's happening right now? They're getting ready to uh, they're, they're getting ready to build a, a bunch of nuclear plants um, and it, they're not safe. Um, in fact, uh, there's there's one in in Detroit that almost melted down. You know, we would we would talk about these kinds of things. Or there's a, a detention center in in Allentown, Pennsylvania, that's just waiting for uh, for some detainees. Uh, you know, we we would talk about and and you know back then you just kind of had to take our word for it. 
Uh, we took somebody's word for it when we read it, you know, when we read those things. Um, and we would do research and we, we would find out that, yeah, OK, you know, this, this is very likely that it's that it's happening. And we would we would talk about it. These are the things we talked about because we felt it was our job as as the griots who we kind of wanted to follow, the West African griots who were kind of like the 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 Walter Cronkite of uh, the the news reporters of um, what I want to say, the news anchors of uh, of of Africa, West African society. Uh, we wanted to take up that role, but now, as you say, there is there are videos. Uh, there are, everybody has a camera in their pocket. There are street cameras. There are the communication. The worldwide, the 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 speed of worldwide communication, it's like it's it's exponentially faster than it was when when we were coming up and when we were doing stuff. So yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's. I think now everybody understands that uh, things have not changed. You know, because they can, as you say, you know, very rightly, they can see it for themselves. And I'm assuming some people, you know, like, like you said, that the, what you were talking about there is that I'm assuming some people didn't believe you when you said certain things were happening because they couldn't it's, see it. That's that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So they, you know, you either took our word for it or or you didn't. And, uh, you know, you would think, though, that um, with all the, with the wealth of information that's coming at us now and um, all the evidence that, you know, we can we can clearly see, you would think that there wouldn't be anybody left <laughs> who wouldn't believe it. But. I was wrong. Yeah, it's uh, it's just, if you wrote that down on a piece of paper and just looked at it, you just you'd think that that's insanity. But um, it, like I you say, it's still classic definition of insanity. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the the samples of the, uh, the, the we were talking about the, the of the rap game. I guess you know how does that make you feel when people sample your music? Is it is it kind of complimentary uh, or do you do you like it? Obviously, there's. You know, Jay Diller was the king of sampling, but yeah. it's, you know, how does that make you feel when you when someone samples your music? Well, yeah, you mentioned Jay Diller, and that's, you know, that's exactly right. I mean, it's an art. I think if, if anybody proved it, he did. And before before there was sampling, there was um, musique concrète, where people were already starting to chop up little bits of sounds and things. And, you know, so it wasn't that in it also is not is not a new concept. The technology was better so that people didn't have to, you know, spend painstaking hours of, of cutting little pieces of tape and reversing them and taping them back together and all of this kind of thing. So, yeah, the technology made it uh, made it easier. But I always respected it. I always respected that art. And I and I still do. I mean, I think that, um, you know, sampling is um, is an instrument. Samplers are, are instruments. Um, instruments are have been being built from uh, from the beginning and there are human beings who will always take them and, and figure out how to use them to to to, to express themselves and and to, to send messages so yeah i'm not opposed to i'm not opposed to sampling and i think it'd be remiss of me as an englishman living in australia i guess fast forward to closer to today 2011 you know take care of you you know by jamie xx and gil scott heron and, and you know with the some of the stuff that you were doing as well did you like that when it came out did you did it did it resonate with you did you kind of or have you even listened to it <laughs> i i listened to it i uh it's 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 not really my my cup of tea you know but but gil's gil's messages and uh so i you know i definitely um 
I, I, I felt some of the old, uh, some of the old gill, you know, for, for a moment. And, and it, it made me feel a bit nostalgic, you know? And so anything that, uh, that he is able to produce or anything that he was, you know, able to, able to do in his last, in his last years, I think it's valuable. So we're giving that a three, three thumbs up rather than a five out of five. <laughs> so, um, how's the weather in uh, <laughs> here in Melbourne? <laughs> um, I guess one of the things that we've been mentioning through throughout as well is that uh, you know a lot of a lot of your life would have been spent in the US growing up, and and you know you've said uh, you know there's the travel component. We were talking about this before as well, and I wondered if it was if it was true what they say. You know, you mentioned or people mention when you start kind of traveling specifically when I, when I talk to American musicians, when they start to travel, it really kind of opens their mind up to other cultures that they possibly feel like they've, they've been in a bit of a silo or a bubble when it comes to America. And then when they kind of step out, they, it, it, it's a, it's a big surprise. Was that, was that the same for you when you started traveling with the music? Well, I, first I have to say that is, that is so true. And I, I think it's not only true of of um, of Americans, but I think it's also true of anyone who who travels to to other places and you know gets a chance to see how other how other people do life. Yeah, it's a it's a very educational experience. You know, I, I highly recommend it for for anyone. My exposure to to different, believe it or not, my exposure to to different ways of of living began inside the United States. Having I had hardly been anywhere. When as a kid in Brooklyn, I think I went to D.C. once and I went to uh, uh, Long Island, Southampton, you know, and a few other places. But I had never. They're like they're like different countries as well, aren't they, Brian? They they are like different. (laughs) (laughs) And 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 they're close. But when I when we started to travel and I ended up in places like Madison, Wisconsin and and some of the. The, the poverty and and some of the, the the you know the drugs that I and and that I saw going on in those communities some of the the deep despair and and desperation that was lying right underneath the surface I I understood at that moment that the, that the dupe uh, that had been had been created in this in this country was uh it was it was extremely successful. Because as a as a young black kid growing up in in New York, um, we we all as young black kids in New York, we all we all assumed that that all white people had money, you know, that all white people were were doing great, you know, and we're doing happy, we're we're happy, and and it didn't occur to me that that might not be true until I actually saw it for myself in in places in the, in the Midwest, and I said it, it was that at that moment I realized exactly what the game was. The game was divide and conquer, and um, it began uh, kind of at the beginning of this uh, of this country. Racism, in fact, was was basically uh, designed to yeah divide and, and divide and conquer. You're you know you know you might be on the same field with them, but you know you're actually better, right? You're gonna you know you're gonna get we're gonna take care of you. You know just just. Put your nose to the grindstone a little longer and uh, yeah, you'll be out of this. Don't worry about it. Not like them. They don't deserve it. And so, you know, this, this whole divide came about. Uh, and, and lo and behold, people still are, are, are working on this, this premise, you know, that they're actually, uh, I mean, I've, I've actually heard people say, well, 
I'm, you know, I'm, I'm poor, you know, I'm not, I don't have a lot of money. I'm not doing well, you know, and all of this, but at least I'm not black. <laughs> as though, you know, is that, that kind of mitigates all of the other, the other problems that, uh, that, that we have here in this country. Well, and you mention it there, you know, it's, 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 it's systemic obviously, but it's, it's also, you know, like you said, on your own doorstep as well, you know, in America, you know, it's, some people don't even know what's happening within other states. Um, and I, I wondered, you know, with, with you, you know, traveling around to different countries, did, was there also a surprise when you left the US that possibly people didn't know what was happening in, in the US? Is it something that you felt like, oh, other countries must know about this? Um, and then you the get surprise. there. And- That's always the surprise. You know, my, my wife, for instance, who is, who is French, you know, she's, she, I consider her um, a well-informed person. Nevertheless, some of the things that she heard, it was impossible for her to believe. You know, I mean, it took her a few years to actually see how this place runs, you know, to understand just how many cases of, of police brutality there are, how many shootings, how many, how, the, 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 the vast uh, class inequality, you know, the uh, the 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 educational system, the the decline of the of the educational system. You're not going to see all these things unless you're unless you're here, you know. And now she has two children who are considered black, and she worries. You know, she worries about them. Her friends. Um, it took. It's it's taken. She's like still having to talk to them. You know, like ten years later, she's still trying to explain to them what the urgency is here in this country with what we're dealing with right now. I mean, they're getting it, you know, and my hat's off to her that she even takes the time now still to, to explain it, but they're getting it. And from that, I, I do understand that. Uh, I, I remember I was in, um, in Barcelona. I uh, must've been about maybe 10, 15 years ago. And uh, I was just sitting on the lawn. We, we were doing a concert at, at uh, and um, was sitting on the lawn, lawn. I speak a little Spanish and, um, Somebody came up to me and it was around the time George Bush was president. Somebody said, well, what do you think about your president? And I said, he's not my president. You know, I didn't vote for him, you know, and I, from what I hear, he really didn't win, you know, by, uh, by popular vote. So uh, there is that, um, and, you know, and he was like, they were kind of shocked. You know, I mean, they, they, they thought that. I think that they that they thought that because you're American, you're going to stand behind your quote unquote your your president, you know, be behind your country. So I think there's a lot of that um, that goes on in the in in the world, and it, it's it's conscious, you know. I mean, I think America works very hard to to maintain this uh, this veil. And it's it's funny that you mentioned that as well with the George Bush era because there's a a documentary I don't know if you've seen it it's called A Map for Saturday uh, where they travel around uh, producer American producer travels around the the world talks to different people uh, growing up and and a lot of the people that they they saw they kept on seeing the Canadian flag on people's bags mm-hmm. even though they had an American accent and then they started to do interviews with them and they said oh the reason why we have an, a Canadian flag is because we don't want any questions about George Bush and what's happening in America <laughs> you know I just heard that recently somebody said that if you you know because if you if you go to places you're going to catch a lot of flack from you know in if you're traveling a lot you're going to catch a lot of flack when people know you're american so 
one person's uh yeah that was the solution that one person had you know just tell them you're canadian <laughs> nobody really has too much beef with canada except obviously except the you know Republicans and it, it's, here in the United States. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I guess it's funny for your your partner or your wife now as well is is that in France there's a massive black community there as, as well. And I don't know where in which uh, you know town you grew up in, but yeah, exactly. It's 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 um, so it will probably obviously it was. It's bad there, like it is in 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 a lot of countries, unfortunately. But it's still. You know, still the fact that she was so surprised when she came over to America, just the, the sheer volume as well. Yeah, you know, because, well, I think probably, you know, black people in France aren't, aren't getting shot at the same rate. You know, they aren't getting beaten and killed by police at the same rate. So, I, I mean, I've even had um, some some black friends in, in France who's, who say, oh, no, I've I've never experienced racism. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's different kind of a a different um it's it's different when you when you live here let me let me put it that way to sure. be fair to be fair is there um a country that surprised you the most that you went to in terms of just the, the sheer difference or the shock to the system <laughs> every every place in a, in a sense you know has that little uh, that little shock value to it you know some some places are just uh wildly different sadly i i see so much of um of my own country everywhere i go uh, i i wish actually i wish i didn't see so much of it yeah and i think that's one of the things that um you mentioned i heard the episode that you did with adrian young from and you were talking about from south africa to south carolina the the, the studio album and the first time you went over there and just like you said just that that, oh, it's um, it's it's the segregation here as well. South Africa. You're talking about um, the song uh, um, Johannesburg, I think. Yes. Where yeah. where we uh, it had been. Oh, let me see how long it had been. Twenty years, a little bit more than twenty years since we had released this album with the song on it that uh, named Johannesburg that was dedicated to the freedom fighters uh, in Johannesburg, again, the freedom fighters who were fighting against apartheid, apartheid at that time. And uh, so we we got over there in 1998 for the first time and we, we decided well, we're going to sing this song, you know, and we're going to, it's going to be celebratory because uh, Nelson, you know, had been Nelson Mandela had been president there for, for four years already. So we sing this song and we get up there and we're like, what's the word? And the answer is, is Johannesburg. It's a chant. And so, we, you know, I'm, I've got a tear forming in the, in the corner of my eye as I raise my fist and I say, what's the word? And, you know, I listen and I hear a couple of people going, hmm, Johannesburg, you know, and I, I, after the show, I, I, well, I saw more people just standing there, like looking at us and you know, it seemed, wow, it's really weird. And plus it was dark. So I, we weren't even sure if anybody was, was responding. And after the show, I asked one of the guys that said, um, what, what happened with that? Did, is that, was that offensive to you guys or something? You know, why, why weren't, why weren't you answering? And he said, oh, well, you know, this was 19, when did you had, you guys had this album out, this song, it was about 1974 or 75. He says, um, that that song was banned here. So in in the end, it was only a few few people who really really went out of their way 
to 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 get our music, you know, and particularly that that song, which must have been a shock to you. Yeah, it was. well, it was you know made perfect sense after he explained it to me. But uh, yeah, I mean, I knew they were banning things. I, I knew that, but you know, the whole purpose of the song was to let them know that we were that we were with them, you know, that we were behind them. So that was kind of deflating. <laughs> but yeah. better late than never. We're coming to the end of the episode now, Brian. I could talk to you for hours, but I guess the, there's two more questions I've got is, are we going to see, now you've spoken about your French uh, wife, are we going to see a French uh, song collaboration with yourself or any other language? Is there one that already exists? You know what? The the possibilities are, are endless, aren't they? <laughs> and i guess the given what we've spoken about today i guess that there's a there's a lot that you've we've kind of covered and i wondered what what are you most proud of in terms of you know your your career and and what you've what you've achieved so i i guess what's what's the thing that you're most proud of i i think that i'm i'm most proud of um of the fact that uh, that I, I've still kind of maintained some sense of uh, of 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 um, my my standards, you know. I I um I've been able to great fortune. Uh, I was able to. I had a job. Though I had a day job that I that I worked for practically thirty five years, and it enabled me to kind of insulate myself from some of the BS that I would have had to ordinarily go through, maybe. Had I had I not had some way, some other way to support myself, so I'm 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 happy. You know, I'm I don't know if I'm proud of it because I think a lot of it was uh, was just really good fortune on my part. I'm also um, very very fortunate to to still have my health, to still even be alive, you know, and uh, you know the fact that I can still uh, can still move around, can still uh, turn a tune or two. Well, that was wow. That was beautiful. Turn a tune or two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know. So I'm 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 happy about all those things. I'm not sure that I, I deserve to be proud of them, but uh, yeah, you know, I'm 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 happy that that I'm still out here doing it, and I'm still running into uh, into great people to do it with. Your humility knows no bounds, Brian. Um, <laughs> uh, Brian Jackson's really great to speak to you and really appreciate you talking to us today. Hey, thanks a lot, Daniel. It's really great talking to you as well. This podcast was edited by Podlike. We provide expert audio and video production for podcasters and content creators. Find out more at podlike.online. <laughs>